Good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Evan. Delighted to be here. There was an article I was reading this week. I like to read a lot of the news. This one was not all that remarkable in so many ways. It talked about uh, how to fix the healthcare system. There was not an, uh, an ounce of it that seemed political whatsoever. It just had a very good recommendation for doctors that I thought was interesting. It was by a psychiatrist who was talking about when she was uh, in her residency um, learning the craft. Uh, she would spend sometimes a couple hours uh, mulling over certain uh, issues and certain uh, problems that came into the office, not able to make heads or tails. She said in one particular case, though, her supervisor, upon asking, said, did you ask the patient? Did you go to the patient and ask them what they think about what you're investigating, about what they think is actually wrong? And she said that proved to be the key. Here before me was a forgotten yet invaluable resource to figuring out the problem. We're going to look again. We just heard the scripture from John 6. Thank you, Mike, for reading that. Uh, we're just going to focus in on part of the feeding of the 5,000, and I encourage you to find John 6 and follow along. We've been talking about Jesus as prophet, shepherd, and king this summer. Uh, you actually hear in the text that the crowd sees Jesus as a prophet, so that's very clearly here. Uh, there is an overtone to the whole text that Jesus is the king, but you have to drill down a little bit to find that. But I would suggest if we look at the interaction that Jesus has with Philip and with his disciples, we actually see Jesus as a shepherd who's shepherding those under his care and, and calling them to more. And I think we'll see the prophet shepherd both of those uh, play out before us this morning as we consider what Jesus does, says, and what it means for us and the call that it puts on us. So let's go to John 6, 5 through 6. We just heard the whole text. Just look at this little part of it. When Jesus looked up, we read, and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, had he just stopped there, that would have been fine, but then he turns to Philip, and what does he do? Uh, he said, or, That's what he did, excuse me, but it tells us the, the statement here. It says, He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. So we get a little uh, insight into Jesus' thinking here. And we can ask a question, was that fair? Was that really a nice thing for Jesus to do to Philip? Look, here's something that needs uh, just something way beyond your power. Where would you, what would you do, Philip? But let's consider the disciples and where they're at. Because here, the disciples had given up an awful lot to come follow Jesus, the rabbi, their teacher. And they expected a lot out of Jesus, too. That's why they left everything, to follow him and be taught as his disciples, to follow. And we learn by imitation, not just instruction, right? We learn uh, from seeing what others do, not simply hearing what others do. And the disciples, by this point, have been able to witness a lot of what Jesus has done. Even in the book of John, six chapters in, they've seen an awful lot happen. You can look back in this and you can see that when they're out with Jesus, uh, they've seen him interact at the wedding at Cana. Some of them were there, where Jesus turns water into wine. 
And when you uh, travel with someone like that, when they put, invest themselves as his disciples, they're not just going home at night, you know, and staying in their own bed and then coming out and seeing Jesus during the day. They see everything that goes on. So they don't just see that Jesus turns water into wine. They see him honor his mother in the process. They see the interaction he has with the wedding guests and what goes on. By this point, they've gone out to get, get food, come back, and they see Jesus sitting at a well with a Samaritan woman. They witness the interaction Jesus has with somebody who would have otherwise been an outcast in society. Last week, in the book of Mark, we saw that the disciples, uh, as they travel with Jesus, Jesus says, let's, let's sneak away and let's rest for a little bit before we get back to the ministry at hand. They interact, they live with Jesus and experience this ministry firsthand. So it's not like something like this comes out of nowhere. And those kinds of experiences are, are invaluable. I know a couple years ago I went to a, a conference with a pastor I was working with and another ministry leader, both with decades of experience. And it's very different to talk to people like that versus to share a room designed for two people with three in there and you're the young guy in that room and to watch the habits. That's what the disciples get. They get to experience the habits of Jesus and learn from the master along the way and be shepherded by him. But he challenges the disciples in a new way here. Something else is going on when he challenges Philip and invites him to something different. Uh, I was struck this week, the leadership lessons of Jesus, uh, Bob Briner, one of the authors, commenting on this, I think, says something useful as we go forward. He says, when Jesus told the disciples to feed the 5,000, it was among his boldest leadership moves, but it was not rash. He knew he could make it happen. It was his short-sighted disciples who saw only the crowds but forgot about their master. By saying, you give them something to eat, Jesus did three things every leader must do at some point. He imparted a vision that only he could see. He delegated full authority to his subordinates to accomplish the task at hand. And he allowed them to share fully in the fulfillment of the vision. And that's indeed what Jesus does. Jesus calls us to follow, but Jesus calls us to actually live into that kingdom that he's bringing. Jesus calls us to live into that vision of that kingdom that is much bigger than we could build with human hands. It's much bigger than we could crowdsource ourselves, even if we put our best efforts together. And it's much bigger than our imaginations, frankly, could ever come up with, what Jesus offers to us. And we're called to follow Jesus. And we see on this that some of the first steps, if you look at the crowd, are to simply just take a bite, to simply just sit down and feast. And of course, he calls the disciples to more. But as we walk into that kingdom, as you're invited into that kingdom and that vision, we have to recognize that Jesus' work, when it gets in you, is food for the journey. It's the nourishment we need to enter into that kingdom life. And so the key question that we can put with that today, wherever you find yourself in relationship to Jesus, maybe you don't know Jesus yet, you've never chosen to follow him, maybe you've been following for years, here's a key question. We can spin it two ways. One in what way is Jesus asking you to step closer? Or perhaps you're already following him and you're feeling pretty close. In what way is Jesus asking you to step up? In what way, just like he talks to Philip here, is he asking you to actually lead a little bit, not just follow 
anymore. Two different avenues. We're going to explore them both as we go forward. But I want to look at the feeding of the 5,000 and talk about what didn't happen first so we can talk about what did happen and then what it means for us. Sometimes, and I, I read this in a very famous commentary from a very famous commentator this week, sometimes people want to water down what happened in the feeding of the 5,000. And, and actually, some of them think they're doing something useful, but it's really not all that useful when you get down to it, and it's not what the story tells us. So, two different variations that we sometimes will hear, and I've heard them both, I've read them both, and not just once, multiple times. Um, in one very famous commentary, and, and some other people will point this out, this commentator, though, points out, he says, well, what Jesus did on the hill was miraculous. He multiplied these loaves and the fish. But if you have a hard time with miracles and you don't really believe it, consider this, he says, and you can hear the commentator basically saying, I don't believe in miracles. So consider this. He says, perhaps it's far-fetched to believe that a crowd of this size left without any provisions at all. Surely somebody had something to eat with them. So when Jesus gets these five loaves and the two fish, and he says the blessing, probably a very traditional Jewish blessing at the meal, and begins to share that, that inspired generosity among others, and that's the miracle. And all of a sudden they open their picnic baskets, and they pull open their backpacks and start sharing around. And from that, sometimes you miraculously get 12 basketfuls at the end. Jesus inspired generosity. That's a watering down of it. I mean, if you just look at the details, you can't really get there very easily. You have to do a little bit of dancing to get there. The barley loaves the young boy has, that's poor people food. Barley was the cheapest grain. This is not a wealthy crowd Jesus is probably talking to. Even if they did have provisions, uh, the, the fish that we're talking about are probably like anchovy-sized fish, pickled. That's, ten, that's how they tended to eat them. These weren't fresh fish from the water. That was not normal for people to, to eat at this time. It's not much. Imagine everybody else has that. You don't end up with 12 basketfuls, among other things. So that kind of waters it down. How much abundance was there really to share? In a case like that, it doesn't make sense of the text, frankly. But people will try and do that. We'll try and somehow, somehow diminish what Jesus did, thinking we're kind of accentuating the human enlightenment portion of it. We're all just better people because Jesus shared. We can share better. I bet it didn't actually change their human nature because we're kind of selfish when you get down to it, aren't we? But the other way that people water it down is just a notch further is that people will say, well, indeed, maybe people had provisions. You can keep that in this other watered-down version. But what Jesus did is he divided it up so much that everybody got a taste of the food, right? They ended up with fish breath, but not full tummies out of the deal is what they got. And really, people will claim this about this, that no miracle really happened at all. It was just, it, and hunger wasn't even the issue. It doesn't say hunger in the text, so that wasn't the issue. Jesus just divided up five barley loaves among 5,000, more than that actually, people that are on the hill. But can I ask a question about both of those? If John's reporting the miraculous and the amazing things that Jesus did, why in the world would you write down these things? Why would you, why would you write that down if you're John? Jesus divided bread into 5,000 pieces. Okay, he's got good cutting skills. What, I mean, I don't know what to do with that, right? That waters it down way too much, and it doesn't make sense to the text because something miraculous happened. That's why. 
So let's not water it down. Let's recognize what Jesus actually did. Jesus had compassion on the crowd, and he fed them. The crowd was hungry. It doesn't say the crowd was hungry, but why else would Jesus have compassion on a crowd that's standing there that doesn't have food and then multiplies food? He's filling a need. The need was hunger. And you can hear, we heard the text from 2 Kings today, when they start to see what Jesus does, the miraculous work that happens, the compassion he has on the crowd and how he handles that, they're actually seeing Old Testament stories come to life again in Jesus. They begin to see, that's why they, they say this is a prophet, they want to crown him king at the end. They see Elisha. That's who they're seeing. We heard that from 2 Kings 4, 42 through 44, that multiplication, this is not the first time God has done this. And now they're seeing that again. We see also, John points out, it was the time of Passover. Passover was the time when they recognized God's provision, God's deliverance from Egypt and freedom from bondage. Well, Jesus looks also at this point then, if you're on a, a hillside with no food and all of a sudden it's provided, miraculously, he looks like the superstar of the faith, Moses. Moses, if you read in places like Numbers 11, where manna is provided by God under Moses' leadership. He looks like a prophet out of, Mo, out of the cut, cut from the cloth that Moses is. You can see that in Deuteronomy 18, which people looked back to as a, a text showing when the Messiah would come someday, that there would be one like Moses, but greater. And here you have a guy who looks like Elisha, who's multiplying the bread, who looks like Moses, who's providing it out of nowhere. If you water it down, you don't get there to those things. They obviously saw it. They experienced it. And the disciples can even see this. They've been seeing that they had uh, a rabbi that they followed who they hoped was the Messiah, and now it's starting to come into focus for them. This guy really is capable of more. Maybe this really is who we've been waiting for. And if you look at just that Moses text and the, the Moses idea, I'll turn to Deuteronomy 18 in just a moment here. It'll come up on the screen. You don't have to find it. Um, they, the questions are asked about this very person, this one who would come that looks like Moses but better. And, and when God delivers this word, it says, you may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has been spoken by the Lord, when this guy comes? It says, if what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously, so do not be alarmed. When Jesus comes, the words that he has match with the actions that he produces. Here's a prophet who can produce. They see that. Here's the one who comes proclaiming a kingdom unrivaled by any other kingdom, unrivaled by anybody else. Here's a guy who comes who can heal those who are sick. Here's a guy who comes who can free those who are in bondage. Here's a guy who comes who does what God does and provides abundance in a world of scarcity. That's the kingdom that he's bringing. That's the prophet that's come now. And the crowd starts to see that. The disciples start to witness that. And so as we consider that, I want to consider then what that, that puts on us as the call of Jesus towards us. In what way is Jesus calling you, asking you to step closer today or to step up? 
this Jesus who is compassionate, who sees our need and proclaims the kingdom of God is here and calls us into it. If we think through just what we're hearing in the feeding of the 5,000, we can recognize that Jesus is compassionate. He feeds the hungry. And maybe today you're here and you're hungry. We call it spiritual hunger now. Whatever we call it, maybe you're here today and things just aren't all adding up. And you say there's more out there. I know there is. Abundance, as it turns out, is God's thing. That's God's M.O. That's how God works. And Jesus reveals this reality over and over. That's what he's doing here. He's showing that with God, you can start with something small, and you're going to have leftovers. That's how it works in God's kingdom. Yet we live in a world steeped in scarcity, and we live that way. We know that if we eat the food, we have to buy more to replace it. It doesn't magically appear in our pantries. We know that when something breaks, we have to fix it or buy another. We know that sometimes we even have to replace parts on our body because they don't work, right? It's scarcity. And we're often afraid in our relationships and in the things that come at us in life that if we change in certain ways, we're gonna, we're gonna, we fear loss that we'll lose out because of that scarcity that we experience everywhere else. And so we labor hard in this life. And we labor for ourselves that we won't experience that scarcity or we can replace things as much as possible. We labor in this life for Jesus, and that's a good thing. But we still sometimes have a scarcity mindset that if we spend it, it won't be there even with Jesus, even when we do ministry for Jesus. Yet what's the first thing we can see here? That Jesus feeds the hungry. In order for anything to change within us, we actually have to sit down and, and feast with Jesus first. He offers this feast, and he gives it out, and he says, now let's sit down and eat it. Let's not just marvel at the miracle, but let's enjoy the presence of the one who gives us this abundance. And that's where it starts, if we're going to recognize the call of Jesus on us to step into the kingdom, is that's why we say, Jesus, a work in you is food for the journey. It's the nourishment we need. And if you're hungry today, the cure is to sit down with the shepherd and eat with him and learn from the master. Jesus will feed those who hunger. And if that's you this morning, recognize this. He doesn't force feed you. He offers the food. You have to take it. We can also see in this that Jesus satisfies the curious. I worked, when I was in college in Chicago, I worked for a catering company for a while, weekends and evenings, whenever I felt like it, they paid really good money. It was miserable work, but we wore tuxedos and we went and served people that had a lot of money in very cool places in Chicago. Uh, Field Museum, George Washington Library, or not George Washington, uh, whichever one, Harold Washington. Which is the guy? I had it before. You know what it is. It's a nice, nice library downtown. I remember it so well. Anyways, <laughs> but I remember serving um, in one particular case uh, it was a fundraiser for the Brookfield Zoo. We were at a western suburban mall. Um, I was in a big, really expensive department store, uh, dressed in the tuxedo, ready to go out and serve drinks and do all the things that you do for a catering uh, event. And uh, they were shorthanded, quite obviously, that night. So they had me and another person in the back room of one of the stations making hors d'oeuvres. And uh, I don't know who came up with the hors d'oeuvres, but it was a bad idea. They were kettle-cooked chips 
which are great, right? But these are really, really cheap kettle cooked chips that they put out on the tray. And it was a high-end salmon pate on the top of the kettle cooked chips. And I don't know about you, but if you work with a cracker, it's flat. If you work with a kettle cooked chip, it's not. It's all kinds of different shapes. And it's oily, and you're trying to squirt this pate on there, and it just isn't working. It takes 30 seconds, even a minute per chip to do these things. And you're squirting it out and trying to get it to stick on. It's not working. And then what happens? You walk out with this tray after a long time working on it. Somebody grabs it, pops it in their mouth, horks it, and walks away, not even enjoying the thing, right? All that work, and they didn't even enjoy it. There's just, it, the hors d'oeuvres felt like a waste in so many ways. We can recognize, as we look at what Jesus does, Jesus feeds fully. Yet because of that scarcity that we encounter sometimes, and because of the fast-paced life that we often think we need to lead, we are often content to eat hors d'oeuvres and call it good with Jesus. We're often too content that way. Jesus' work in you changes who you are into who you are supposed to be. That's what's supposed to happen when Jesus gets to work. But there are entire traditions built around the idea that we can simply have the hors d'oeuvres of Jesus and call it good, that we can simply snack on what he has, that the Bible is just a book full of good morals. It's helpful, but it's not really authoritative. And if that's how you end up living, just kind of wandering in and out of Scripture, and you could easily get your... Um, your inspiration from searching for the same thing on a quote board online as you could from Jesus, then you got a problem. We end up being church tourists instead of residents of the kingdom at that point. That is to say, we end up coming in and out and in and out and get a little inspiration, but we lack completely any transformation through Jesus Christ. And my experience is those who dabble in Jesus flounder rather than flourish. Those who simply want a little bite here and there are not transformed, and they're still always going to be wanting, never fully satisfied. Jesus offers us more than that. You can see in verse 2, the people came to Jesus out of curiosity. It said, the great crowd of people followed him. Why? Because they saw the signs he had performed and that he was healing the sick. They saw this. They were curious. They wanted something more, and Jesus had the satisfaction there for them. He challenges those who are curious, but he won't force you to change, even though that's the point. We have to dig in. We have to, again, sit down at the master and be mentored by him. A third thing we can see from all of this is that Jesus has compassion, and he challenges the complacent. Right? He does that. Really, the disciples might be in that category a little bit without realizing it. Well, a couple truths we should recognize, and we saw it very clearly in the text uh, in verse 6. Jesus was already going to act even if the disciples failed the test. Jesus was already ready to act. He was doing something different in that. He, he could have multiplied things. That wasn't the point. He was doing something else with the disciples. Jesus is not dependent on humans to do his will. He calls us in to be partners in that. But he's going to accomplish it anyways. We're just called to be a part of it. But when we get to the issue of complacency, this is the zone that sits between curiosity and full following. So the curious come, they see the signs, they see the wonders. Full followers are completely and wholly in. Complacency is that area where we often forget the resources that we have in Jesus. 
we know the promise of the kingdom cognitively. We're, we're aware of it, and we can all find ourselves in this place, just so you know. I can be in the complacent camp quite often. But it's where we end up, because we're not really moving forward that much at that point. We're kind of tired. We're kind of not sure where to go sometimes. We end up putting twice the effort in with half the results or less. It's where we in life will often stick with things because it's comfortable and we're afraid of change and what could happen. People stick with relationships they ought not stick with, even though they're bad for them because they're afraid of going to a different relationship or exiting that relationship. We do it in ministry and churches all the time, right? We stick with something because we know it. It's safer that way. And what we end up doing in the world of complacency is that we end up eating crumbs with Jesus when we're offered a feast with food to spare. I mean, Jesus is handing out the Tupperware full of the stuff at the end if we'll just take it and eat the feast, and instead we're still just snacking if we're not careful. Jesus is compassionate. He challenges the complacent. And finally, Jesus is compassionate. He trains those who follow. He trains them to become leaders. I've been listening to and, and reading some of the apologist J. Warner Wallace over the past couple years, and I really like his stuff. He is a cold case homicide detective in Los Angeles County who became an apologist along the way um, when he started investigating the faith. He was an atheist, became a believer, and does some great work now as an apologist. But he, he points out, uh, thinking through his police training, um, he points out that one of the things that's missing in Christian apologetics, we could apply it here and see it at play in what Jesus does with Philip, what's missing is, is really that training piece too often. We can do the education component, we can learn, we can read all the books you need, but it's completely different when you get out in the field. And he likens that to police training. He tells a great story. He says um, when police are trained... Um, they're, you know, they're taught the law, they're taught how to use their, their sidearm, all the things that go into that. Uh, but he says, really, it doesn't mean as much until that first time that they're out on a call. He says they'll put a, a rookie police officer with a veteran, they'll get that first bar fight call. He says that's the lowest stakes thing you can do. He says the veteran and the rookie will walk in, but the veteran pulls back and lets the rookie go in, and he knows the rookie might get roughed up a little bit in the process. It might be a difficult experience, but he knows he can achieve it. It's just going to teach him an awful lot about what he doesn't know. Now the training means a lot. He realizes, I can do this, but he realizes, man, there are a lot of gaps in my knowledge here. He has to step up and actually do the job and lead. Getting out in the field changes the experience. That's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus trains his followers to be like him in all ways. I want to invite the band forward uh, as we kind of round this out, but I want to point out that in Jesus, we have access to the abundance of the Master. We have access to the authority to actually act. And when Jesus looks at Philip, he asks him to do something more than just follow, but to take on that authority and lead. To take on that authority and invite others to the feast. You've eaten with me, now lead and bring others into my kingdom as well. I don't know where you find yourself today. Maybe you're hungry. If you're hungry today, then the call on you is to sit with the master and eat. 
feast on everything Jesus has to offer. Dig in, whether that's reading the Gospels, whether that's sitting down with another believer and, and understanding what it is that Jesus promises. Sit down with the Master and feast on his promises and his teachings. If you're curious today, it's just a step removed from that. You actually commit yourself to living under the authority of the teacher. Stop being just curious and commit to what Jesus has to offer. If you're complacent today, and yes, we can all find ourselves in that category more often than we want to admit, what we need to do is count the gain that we'll get on a new path with Christ versus the loss that we'll see on the old path because the gain is better. And if you're feeling pretty close to Jesus today and you're a good follower, but you've never stepped up to lead, then place yourself in the position of Philip today. Place yourself with that challenge to be put in the field, raised by the master to lead people into his kingdom. Jesus' work in you is food for the journey. He's the nourishment that matters and that changes us so that we can lead others into, this, into his kingdom. Let's pray together. God, help us where we feel hungry, satisfy. Where we feel curious but yet lost. Don't let us feast on something that won't satisfy, but draw us in. Where we are complacent, God, help us wake up. Help us get excited. Help us feast on what you have to offer us. And God, put us out into the field where we can find others who are hungry, who are lost, who are curious, who are complacent, that we can draw them into your presence fully and completely because you are the only food that satisfies, that nourishes us not just for this life, but that leads us into the life to come, the life everlasting in your kingdom. God, may we experience those promises in part today so we can experience the fullness in days to come. May we experience the feast where their basketfuls left over to experience the day when the cupboards will never be empty, God. And your presence is fully with us forever and ever. God, may that be our reality today. We pray this all in the name of your Son who gave us that reality if we'll only take it. Amen.